AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T Threat Track for June 7th, 2016. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today we're joined by Manny Ortiz. Welcome, Manny. Good to be here. Good to see you here. And uh, Stan Nurlov. Welcome, Stan. Thanks, Brian. Are you with us, Stan? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> okay, you're good. <laughs> I'm Brian Ruxrod, and we're all here. And uh, first we're going to go to Manny here. And uh, wow, I mean, if it can be poached, you know, I tend to think of going out on a safari, you know, and, and perhaps, uh, right. you know, encountering poachers, but right. I guess they're... Poached eggs for some reason. Poached, poached eggs. Poached right. eggs. Yeah, you can go with any one of those, right? Yeah. <clears throat> but in this, in this case, we're talking about bug poaching. Right. And bug as in, you know, security bugs. Mm -hmm. uh, not uh, like roaches and stuff. So right. this story basically goes through, and it, it was an interesting, you know, uh, um, uh, tie into like a home burglary, bur burglary scenario mm. where they say that a, a burglar comes into your house, obviously, you know, while you're not home, gets into your house, mm -hmm. then goes through and starts taking pictures of all your valuable stuff, mm -hmm. exits your house without taking anything, mm. and then takes those pictures and sends them to you and says, hey, look, I've got pictures of all your stuff. I got inside your house pay me a whole bunch of money and I'll tell you how to fix the locks on your house. Mm. IBM had identified basically this campaign that was going on that's targeting over 30 organizations right now, mm -hmm. which basically the, the, the poaching right now is they're saying that they're asking for up to about $30,000 for these, you know, for these findings that they have. Mm -hmm. So what's involved? So what they do is they basically go in, whatever we want to call them, right? Because they've I'm sure they call themselves something we'll different, call hackers but for hackers like, oh, yeah. for, right. Whatever kind of hat they're actually wearing and what color it is, we don't know. But um, they basically go in, they go into companies, and the first, first and foremost, it's companies that do not have a, an established bug bounty program today. Mm -hmm. That's important key, right? So they don't have a bug bounty program themselves, and they go in, just like typical, they, they target the externally facing assets. Sort of an unsolicited penetration test, right? Exactly, okay. that's exactly it. So they do this penetration testing, they find the vulnerabilities, they get inside the, the organization, and you know, as in the scenario, they take the snapshots. Their snapshots are actually, they're looking mm -hmm. for PII, they collect as much of it as they possibly can, once they have that and they've extracted it, they go and dump it off into, a, into a, some sort of cloud store. Mm -hmm. The next step is basically send an email over to the organization and say, hey, by the way, Mr. You know, organization owner, as you can see, you know, if you go to this cloud store, I show you that, you know, in fact, I was in your, in your organization. I did get this information from you. Mm -hmm. And if you want to know how I did it, just mm -hmm. pay me this small fee, mm -hmm. and I'll let you know exactly how, how I did this. I don't know how you slice, I, I mean, I'm not a lawyer. This sounds like extortion to me. <laughs> it, it, it certainly, you know, is, is, very, is pushing the borders. Now, yeah. the reason why they, they're saying that it, it's sort of like right on that border is because they're not 
in no way are they saying that they're going to leak the information, mm -hmm. right? They're not saying that they've, you know, that they're going to give it out to anybody else. They're not mm -hmm. going to sell it to anybody else. They're saying they're just giving you the opportunity. Yeah, to I think uh, so. It's just to play uh, for the counter argument, right. you know, capturing maybe a little segment, a handful of records or something like that to demonstrate that it was done right. is very different from gathering as much information as possible, possible. next for trading that. But exactly. the, I mean, it, perhaps part of the demonstration is the fact that, fact that large amounts of data could be exfiltrated. I mean, because right. that is one portion of the, an attack that could be, could be detected. So I guess I'm arguing with myself here. It's not the first time I've ever done that. <laughs> but the, uh, <laughs> I mean, it still is, uh, is gonna be an unpleasant experience for the Client, right. I, I suspect it's uh, going to be hard to get repeat business with the organization. Yeah, and and, and as they state here, the the problem also is is that they've proven they've proven that they've got all this information from you. Mm -hmm. There's there's nothing that says that after you pay the money, that they aren't going to that go ahead and leak either leak the data or sell it off to somebody else on purpose or by accident. Exactly. I mean, one of the exactly. other uh, problems there is they're actually taking this personal information or this very sensitive information supposed to be protected a certain way, moving it across boundaries. I'm sure all of their systems are certified <laughs> sure. compliant Absolutely. with all Absolutely. the uh, And then putting it into some cloud storage right. up there. Uh, and then there's no guarantee they're going to delete it or properly delete it. So it's right. kind of crossing the boundary in my book. Yeah. Well, and uh, I guess, uh, so what would be the alternatives? First of all, I guess I, I'll put in a plug. I mean, we're big proponents of a bug bounty program. Absolutely. ATT has a bug bounty program. Very much encourage uh, organizations, that if, whoever might discover something, to make sure that uh, they report it. So and I, I guess I would, even looking at it from the other direction, look for businesses that do have a bug bounty program associated with their products. Uh, any organization, either through their support line, if, if, if they don't have a formal bug bounty program, but to try to encourage people to, you know, report any issues or incidents associated with their organization so that right. they can go off and, and do something about it. So right. um, that, by all means, uh, is the uh, right thing to do. But yeah. to be picking out, you know, organizations that don't have a bug bounty program I mean, that's really kind of setting it up right. in some respects. And, and of course, I think we've talked about it probably many times o over the years. One of the key things also, a learning experience from this is, mm -hmm. is go off and do the penetration and vulnerability testing yourself before somebody else does it for you. A good point, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Go and do yeah. the testing, yeah. make sure you're in a good position security-wise, yep. absolutely. Yep. All right, very good. So Stan. <laughs> yes, I'm still here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> You're still here. <laughs> All right, well, let's go. Uh, let's go to you, Stan. And um, you know, you're continuously doing malware analysis, and so you, I think you kind of gravitated to this story, and uh, it gives us a little bit of a reminder of some things that uh, you know we had learned about in the past. So yeah, take it. FireEye uh, had discovered some malware. Um, that they found was similar in nature. So when they started investigating, they noticed it's uh, targeting control systems, mm -hmm. industrial control systems, you know, SCADA and stuff like that. And um, they uh, dubbed it Iron Gate. So that's the, the big thing. Uh, but as they did their analysis, they noticed that it didn't seem, and as they worked with like the vendor that this seemed to be targeting, they found out it probably doesn't target anything production. Mm. It's only targeting, it seemed to be like some sort of a proof of concept. 
or kind of some kind of a testing. Mm -hmm. um, and there's several like kind of hints and clues that they found to corroborate that. And they, I, I'm guessing they dealt with multiple samples. It was interesting also how they got the samples actually through VirusTotal. Mm -hmm. So all these samples uploaded to VirusTotal that they were able to analyze and look for similarities and differences in. And so as they did that analysis, one thing I noticed that was interesting is that they were using like a Python dropper, which I know we've seen a lot before. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was also layers of, uh, I guess, different kinds of um, installers and packers and things like that. And at the end, it also, the, the different variants of it, did different things to uh, protect themselves from like a sandbox analysis or automated analysis, like in a mm -hmm. virtual machine. They actually took certain steps to see, hey, am I running within like a virtual machine environment? Am I running within um, like a Cuckoo Sandbox environment? In fact, the way they did the Cuckoo Sandbox environment was interesting to me because, uh, like I'm a practitioner, you could tell. <laughs> they, uh, they were looking for like directory names and specific names of directories like across the box, but only within certain character limits. Anyway, I thought that was interesting, uh, the way they were searching for it. Usually when they do um, an anti-VM trick, they're looking for something specific, a specific string in the registry. Mm -hmm. But here they were doing something a little bit more random, just in case the environment had been set up differently. So I thought that was interesting. And the other thing I thought that was interesting about the specific malware that they observed is that, so the way it works in industrial control systems, there's like sensors out there. And then there is a controller, and then there is the operator GUI. So th what the operator sees is what the sensors are reporting, and then there's some control mechanism that has to take place and act based on the information. Mm -hmm. um, so what they were able to do is they have this malware working in such a way that it's like taking information from like the sensor, and then what it did is like records five seconds of it, and then sends that five second loop to the uh, to the operator. So that's mm -hmm. what they see is everything is normal. And then they had the capability that they were proving out that they can actually modify things and send to the controller different commands mm -hmm. instead of what the GUI would send. So there were some interesting things about how like the malware worked and the DLL injection techniques they had. Um, it was basically like a, almost like a, mal a man in the middle, but at the DLL level is how they were able to achieve that with the malware. Uh, but I just thought, to me, it was interesting. Some are, uh, news outlets are out there or some internet articles are kind of drawing parallels to Stuxnet and maybe it might be a clone or stuff like that. The way I read uh, the paper, it didn't seem anything like a clone to me. Right. It just seemed that the fact that it was att attacking SCADA or targeting SCADA mm -hmm. seemed to be the only relationship to Stuxnet. Stuxnet. I also don't think it was as complicated as Stuxnet. Mm -hmm. Like that malware and the payloads it had seemed to be much more complicated. Mm -hmm. uh, even I had trouble following it at the time when it was being disclosed. Whereas with this, I was like, oh yeah, uh, we can do this, this, this. <laughs> it was really much simpler in my mm -hmm. opinion. But um, I mean, it sounds pretty sophisticated. It had a, a lot of uh, a lot of the defense features, uh, some similar capabilities or similar yeah. intent behind it. I could see this perhaps being used, and this is completely hypothetical, of perhaps this being used as, you know, somebody saying, well, how the heck could, you know, a Stuxnet thing be done? And then being able to uh, show, like, well, here, you know, a number of things that, uh, the way it could be done, even though the implementation is independent. Yeah. 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 That that, re that replay 
feature of this one that reminds me of like any good Mission Impossible movie mm -hmm. where they where yeah, they yeah, played it, <laughs> right? Yeah, I was imagining the proverbial you know cat going across the video in, <laughs> right. the, in, in that five second clip, and you keep seeing the cat going past. And there's, there's something wrong there. <laughs> you see the needle. Only if you know, right. I guess that depends on the the analyst, right, who's sitting behind yeah. the, the keyboard. Right. Exactly. Uh, one interesting thing they did mention is when these things were uploaded to Virus Total, they weren't actually being detected by anybody, mm -hmm. uh, and that's because well. I assume that's because it seemed to have this kind of targeting, right? It's targeting a specific platform or specific DLL, and maybe the sandboxes can't really catch it. Plus, I'm assuming, you know, also the NTVM, anti-sandbox features. Mm -hmm. Well, and on top of that, if um, uh, I don't think it's necessarily automatic that things get put into antivirus. In fact, I know that uh, anytime we run into a, a sample that isn't detected, we submit it to our antivirus vendor, and depending on the circumstances, might insist they get it in there very quickly. Yes. And I suspect that if this were a scenario where somebody found it in their environment, they would have at least hopefully done the exact same thing. And so I think that's partly how it proliferates through the antivirus vendors. So, you know, perhaps that's a good piece of advice. That is, if you find samples that aren't detected, uh, maybe you can, you know, nudge your antivirus vendor to, yep. to try to get it in there. Yep. So. Very good. So let's talk about virus total a little bit here. You know, we were chatting about this earlier. Yes. My personal point of view, I think of all of the threat sharing attempts that are taking place uh, around. I mean, you know, there's some good private organizations. We subscribe to some where we're getting threat indicators and things. But in terms of a voluntary threat sharing environment, I think virus title has done the best job so far. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're talking about it earlier, I think the, the, the model that you really want to get is this one where as you're sharing, it feels less like sharing, it feels more like the benefit you're getting back, the analysis of, of that sharing process. So mm -hmm. it's, uh, you know, the sharing's almost peripheral. In fact, we're, <laughs> we were saying earlier, some people might not even realize they're sharing. The, you know, these malware samples, they're really just trying to see, you know, what antivirus detects right. it, you know, what types of uh, characteristics are associated with yeah. that malware. But by having all of those samples now, I think a lot more of this kind of research is possible, which is mm -hmm. great. And like you said, oh, well, actually, one of the things that I thought was great about VirusTotal as an idea when it first started, it was very simple. A lot of these websites that are really useful have this very simple idea, and it's, hey, submit your sample, we'll give you value, like you say. Mm -hmm. And it's simple. We'll just compare it, not, not compare it, but run it against the different AVs and tell you what the results are. Mm -hmm. Such a simple idea. Yeah. It's really useful to the end user. Uh, but then you can also build like this whole sharing threat information study mm -hmm. capability, basically. Yeah. If I understand correctly, this had been kind of sitting dormant in there for a couple of years. And uh, I'm not sure how they ran across it, but... You know, yeah, I think they were doing some analysis with like Python installers. I know I noticed mm. that a lot of um, uh, threat actors in the recent past have been using a lot more installers, especially Python installers. Mm -hmm. I suspect in doing that research, you know, when you're first analyzing the malware, that first outer shell is the thing you see before you dig deeper. And they probably, as doing that analysis, they probably found these samples. Mm -hmm. When they opened it up, and they're like, oh, this is slightly different than these other ones. And yeah. usually that's how it goes. I think this one's just interesting because it uh, really uh, targets those ICS systems, the mm -hmm. industrial control systems. Oh, I guess perhaps in summary, for folks that are skeptical about malware being tailored to specific systems, 
uh, there's obviously activity that's going on out there. Yes. And so, uh, you know, be careful that, 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 you know, sort of past notion that this is a proprietary system and people weren't going to be able to develop malware to, to run in it or defeat it. It's no longer a very good argument, in my opinion. If you have something of value and somebody's motivated. Somebody's definitely working on it. It can right. be done. Absolutely. Yeah. So. All right. So, uh, Manny, let's go back to you here. And um, uh, speaking of uh, installers. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering where the tie-ins are. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so this is uh, what they call out-of-the-box exploitation, right? Mm -hmm. So um, the, the, the OEMs out there call... Um, call this the OOBE, which is their out-of-box experience, right. which is talking about like when you when you bring home that brand new spanking laptop that you're so mm -hmm. excited about, you know, playing the latest uh, version of Call of Duty or or Battlefield, and okay. you. I'm sorry. Uh, we don't recommend spanking your laptop. Okay. But <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, so, you know, you, you, you go to power it on the first time, you know, you hit that power button and you expect to, you know, get into the, right. and what ends up happening is, is that the, the, the OEM, the, the vendor has provided you, you know, they, they think it's a service a to you to provide useful tools, right, useful yes. tools mm -hmm. for you to have on your system. So um, offering you tons of, you know, from, you know, from here's our greatest updater that will make sure that you have all your, your drivers updated to here's 30 days of free antivirus and mm -hmm. you know we've all seen it right so uh, you forgot the game center and game center right exactly. and the media center exactly and, the, okay, <laughs> yeah. and on and on uh, this this company dual labs uh, decided to you know test out you know what they could do with these out-of-box, you know, updaters that are that are basically Were installed. Were they predominantly focused on the security perspective of the software? Yes, they were definitely focused on that on that area of it. So they took five vendors and ten products. Mm -hmm. So obviously, brand new, out of the box. Mm -hmm. Let's see what they what they provide, and then let's see if there's any kind of vulnerabilities that, that exist with with these in, included installers, these mm -hmm. updaters, um, and you know. Of course, you know, as if we're talking about it here, we know that, you know, there was some, you know, pretty big surprises that came of it. Mm. And the biggest surprise, which is that out of all 10 machines that they tested, every single one of them had a vulnerability that uh, I believe ultimately ended up giving them um, system access. So it, it threw perhaps a man in the middle of the attack through that so, process yes, or something along exactly. those lines. So, I, so, they, the, so the, this article, as a matter of fact, it, there's, an, there's a 36-page paper that they wrote, which is an interesting read. Um, and if you have the time, read through it, because it goes into very minute detail about what mm -hmm. they tested and what they found. But one of the biggest things was that they said is that most of the vulnerabilities that they found were of the man-in-the-middle um, mm -hmm. you know, genre. So the, any, anyway, so at the end of this, after they tested all this stuff, so and again, they found that every single one of them had a hole in it. Um, they they found 12 vulnerabilities. So out of the 10, they had 12 vulnerabilities that they that they uh, identified and reported. Right. Mm -hmm. So they went out and reported this out. And basically, the they went through and they had some 
concerning trends as they went through this. So there was a couple of things that they had concerns with as they went through all this at the mm -hmm. end. What they said was that uh, every vendor had at least one vulnerability in their updater that led to the remote code execution as, as system, which mm -hmm. we know that's pretty much as bad as it gets, right? And then the vendors, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, often fail to make uh, basic use of TLS. Mm -hmm. So they were talking about these uh, manifest files, which is basically the machine understanding what, up, what update packages do you have available for me to download. Mm -hmm. the, all that information, for the most part, was being relayed via HTTP, mm -hmm. which is you know, a huge no-no. Um, and then, um, and then they had multiple layer, uh, multiple updaters for different purposes. So they were using instead of using like a single updater, they were using separate updaters for different purposes on the machine, mm -hmm. which provided more chances to have something. More opportunities to have vulnerabilities. Right. More software, more vulnerabilities. Right. Yep. Yep. So, again, you know, it, it goes into quite a bit of detail. Um, but it was quite eye-opening to see mm -hmm. that, you know, that, you know, and, and, you know, we're talking about some of the biggest vendors out there in, mm -hmm. you know, in like home yep. assets, you know, uh, laptops and desktops. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, I think some of, the, some of the things that they had gone through and tested, you know, we listed out here. So uh, manifest, uh, manifest transmitted over a TLS, which we mm -hmm. just talked about, signed manifest, so, you know, actually signing those. Um, updated, uh, transmit, uh, transmitted over TLS, mm -hmm. and then authentication val validation. So right. those were right. the key items that they actually tested each one of these against, and you know, and found quite a bit of failure. All right, well, across the board. Uh, take a look at it now. You know, I guess that really provides a kind of a reasonable argument. You know, sometimes there's the question about why can't I use my, you know, PC whatever and the enterprise right. environment. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, it does kind of argue for a situation where, you know, an enterprise install image uh, that's been basically scrutinized for things like this and is managed as a single package yep. perhaps provides some uh, security advantage in that way. I mean, uh, understandably, uh, perhaps uh, not all that intuitive, but the fact of the matter is Anytime you install additional software on something, you're increasing the uh, surface area right, for exactly. potential vulnerabilities and and ultimately the potential for exploits against that. Yep. You know, it's, uh, I think it's interesting in that sense from an enterprise point of view. If you're looking for justification for having enterprise images and managing those, um, it may be well this worth is, it yeah. since uh, it doesn't appear that the commercial tools have really been doing a good job. Now, that withstanding, Building an enterprise image that has the same problems isn't going to really help you all that much. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right. Very good. So let's take a little bit of a look at the uh, internet weather for the last week or so here. And I'll start off with a uh, basically a story that was uh, published uh, by Akamai. You know, Akamai does a regular report. I think it's quarterly uh, on the state of the internet, I think they refer to it as. And uh, one of the things that they featured recently is a... Uh, basically the, the use of TFTP in denial of service attacks. Uh, I think they referenced a, um, you know, on the order of about 1.4 gigabit per second attacks is uh, having occurred, them being used in combination with other attacks up in the, you know, much larger. And uh, I think that sort of diversity 
is uh, fairly typical now. A lot of these denial of service attacks aren't a single attack vector. They're using a lot of tools to be able to do that. But, uh, you know, I think our data uh, basically corroborates with their uh, statement here. We had at least one attack that we'd seen uh, that was up around 1.4 gigabits per second, uh, although that was quite some time ago, back in March, and it seems to have been diminishing since then. And I'm not exactly sure why. I think perhaps it's not uh, getting a good amplification effect out of it. And then similarly, looking at these scan probes, that is in terms of sources as well as probes, uh, being the number of sources at the top here, we're only seeing tens of sources that are actually scanning, you know, around, or at least overtly, or you know, obviously scanning around for uh, port 69 UDP, that being the port that a trivial file transfer protocol uses. And then uh, in terms of the number of flows, uh, it's relatively aggressive in some cases, uh, kind of spiky in nature, uh, but it has been somewhat on an increasing trend on both accounts. So uh, that's probably the most uh, important observation here is that there are more activities looking for that. Uh, even though the uh, use in denial of service tax perhaps is going down a little bit. And then another uh, sort of uh, quick check that I had done using Shodan here is showing what are, you know, apparently TFTP servers on the internet. I'm not sure if I did a search that was, you know, would be comprehensive, but there certainly were uh, hits along these lines. And it's showing here on the order of about 50,000 in France, uh, you know, 21, 22,000 in India. Uh, about 17,000 in China and 15,000 in the United States. So it is on the order of perhaps hundreds of thousands across the, uh, uh, around the globe that could be potentially recruited and used in denial of service attacks. So uh, a, not something, uh, if, if, forgive the pun, not a trivial amount. And so taking a, you didn't even chuckle with that. You, no, you just got a, a smart, bit. just a little, a little smart. No, okay. There was a little. <laughs> okay. Taking a look at the, uh, you know, over the last year or so here of the uh, collection of reflective denial service attack activity. And I really just picked out the ports that are most often used in denial of service attacks. There are certainly others that can be used. And so I think, uh, actually, I think DHS had pu published a paper some time ago that theorized a number of ports. I think as a practical matter, any service that is exposed to the internet that uses UDP has the potential of performing some type of, uh, you know, reflective denial of service attack. That is, it's willing to respond to a spoofed source address uh, and then sending its response off to wherever that spoof source address is. That's a fundamental cri criteria around a reflective denial of service attack. And so any, in any case, I'll start at the bottom of the list here. Uh, you'll see, well, you probably can't see it on the graph, but there is a real little skinny sliver of blue activity down there that is looking at the trivial file transfer protocol activity on the internet that's relative to a lot of the other denial service attack activities. So even though there have been some relatively notable attacks using that port, and this is, happens to be averaged over 40 hour, you know, 48 hours in a moving average, so it evens the graph out a little bit here, it is not a significant contributor, relatively speaking. Next on the list here, a port 19 UDP, that's character generator, which, uh, you know, if you send it a request and it basically sends you the alphabet back, and uh, that has for a long time been used in reflective denial of service attacks. It really doesn't have a whole lot of real practical use on the internet and uh, has not changed significantly over the last year here. So uh, it doesn't look like 
that has, uh, it looks like that's still, we'll say, moderately frequently used. Next here is uh, port 53 UDP, that's DNS, and that is frequently, in fact, I think that's the, uh, the most often used uh, reflective denial service attack vector today. It's particularly challenging because DNS servers kind of need to be on the internet to be able to do domain resolution, and uh, it's uh, relatively difficult to control that. Uh, there are rate limiting capabilities on uh, most DNS software today, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's been uh, uh, well established across the, uh, uh, across the entire infrastructure. And there are a lot of devices, and sometimes home routers, that expose DNS service to the internet, even though it really shouldn't be the case. So uh, looking over the last year here, there's probably, you know, I'm, I'm just eyeballing it here, between a three and four fold increase in the amount of DNS response traffic that is predominantly almost entirely the increase associated with uh, reflective denial service attacks. Looking at port 123 UDP, that's network time protocol. It's been a relatively modest decrease in activity over the last year or so here, but it still gets used in reflective denial service attacks. It does have, if the monlist command is working, which uh, I think for the most part has been pretty much patched, uh, if the systems have been patched, uh, but the monolith command did have a significant uh, amplification factor, and so that was a very popular vector for a period of time. And then next, looking at simple service discovery protocol, SSDP, port 1900 UDP. That's not one that you would expect to see on the internet. It's one for actually on, on, uh, on LAN, the LAN protocol. That has gone down very significantly over the last year, which is a very you know, positive thing to see that the significant amount of reduction it's probably on the order of maybe one hundredth of what it used to be, so a good sign there. And then last but not least here is port zero UDP. Fragmented packets show up in flow data as port zero. For the most part, the activity there is associated with basically fragmented DNS responses, and I believe character generator also generates fragmented packets as well in some cases. So between those things, uh, you get a little bit of assessment. Now, I think overall, there probably is not any significant change left to right for over the last year in terms of the uh, denial of service attack activity, perhaps a little bit of an increase, but we've also increased the amount of data we're feeding into our system. So I'm going to say it's re remained relatively flat. And um, a lot of this is based on, you know, services, stressor services, booter services, where uh, they're willing to accept a fee to conduct denial of service attacks. And um, so that is. So we continue the activities to try to get that under, under control, and it's, uh, it's also important that organizations uh, protect themselves from denial of service attacks if that's the case. Uh, looking at the scanning activity over the last week or so, particularly on port 23, you know, we've uh, reported over the last couple, I think few weeks here, about a significant increase in the number of sources as well as the number of probes on port 23. This is no doubt attributable to um, you know, these devices that have port 23 exposed, IoT devices or internet insecure things, devices that are not properly locked down. It's at, at still continues at unprecedented levels. This is the highest that we've seen uh, where if you look at the number of sources on the order of about uh, 240, 260, uh, you know, thousand sources in any given hour. So well and above anything we've seen before as well as anything on any of the other ports.
And then uh, on a similar note, this is a uh, port 53413 UDP. This is uh, associated with Netis routers. Uh, again, a home router that has a back door apparently intentionally installed on it. You can just throw a packet at it and it's got the, uh, and the uh, contents of the packet can include uh, scripting information and it'll execute on those scripts if it has that back door in it. And the number of sources that are uh, performing this scanning activity has gone up. I don't think this is as high as we've ever seen it, but it's um, approaching that level. So on the order of 35,000 sources. This is a device that's much more popular in Asia than it is in the United States. But uh, nevertheless, it is available in the United States and there are devices out there. So with that, that's our show for today. We'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. And you can find AT&T Threat Track on the AT&T Tech Channel. It's on YouTube. And it's also available as an audio podcast on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at attbusiness. And uh, I'd like to thank you, Manny, for joining us today. Yep. Thank you, Stan, for joining us. Thank you for and having me. And heart, mind, and body. <laughs> and uh, I'm Brian Rexroad. <laughs> we'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T Threat Track are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.